Welcome to Light for the Journey, a podcast of Russell Memorial Methodist Church. In today's message, Pastor David Cartwright leads us on a Lenten journey of Jesus in the wild. What does your spiritual business card say? Jesus' card said, My child, beloved. Those who are baptized into Christ have the same divine moniker spoken over them. It is who we are, whom God proclaims us to be. Fulfilling our calling hinges upon our confidence in this identity. We may often be tempted to question whether whether our identity and belovedness are true. Wilderness may help us see that living into this identity is the purpose of God for our lives. I invite you to turn in your scripture to the gospel according to Luke in chapter 4. We will uh, launch our time together there. As you're preparing for that, let me, uh, because I can't resist, just offer a comment, non-sermon related, uh, just because it goes with the theme of the day. I I seem to not be able to help myself whenever I hear the song that Fritz played for our offertory, which is an old uh, hymn of the church called The Love of God, which I think contains some of the most beautiful lyrics in, in one of the verses written about the love. And I, because I love the imagery, and it says, Could we with ink the ocean fill, and were the skies of parchment made, were every stalk on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade? To write the love of God above, would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. A love of God so rich and pure, how measureless and strong. It will forevermore endure the saints and angels' song. It is beautiful. And still underestimates the depth of God's love. And the reason I just take that moment today is because that that reality of God's love for God's children is at the root of what we're doing in this season and especially today, today's message. Please know how much God loves you. Would you pray with me? Father, in these moments, uh, we pray in your great mercy that your Holy Spirit would just capture our hearts and minds in these moments. Father, would you please allow your Holy Spirit to guide me, that the words I speak would be words of your truth, that anything other than your truth would be quickly forgotten, that whatever is of your truth, that it may find a place of lodging within our hearts. Please do your transformative work within us. And for all good things that we receive now, we direct the praise and glory toward only you. In the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. How many of you, I'm just curious, and you don't need to be bashful about this because there's no reason to be, how many of you know what the MMPI is? No one, surely somebody knows, is the acronym too old? 
I bet you some of you have even taken it, the MMPI, the Minnesota Multiphasic Personality Inventory. Okay, at least one. And it's not a bad thing because it doesn't mean there's something wrong with you if, you've, if you know what it is or if you've taken it. I had to take it. When I was a candidate for ministry, all of the clergy had to take it. It's a, it's a personality uh, psychological analysis inventory that's like hundreds of questions that you, you, know, you sort uh, response to. And they use it for a number of things, one of which is to, uh, to vet employment candidates and, you know, to see if there's really anything wrong with you. <clears throat> the reason I bring it up, there, there was a question on the exam. I don't know if they've changed it. I know they've changed the exam, or the inventory, I should say, since I took it in the mid-90s. But there was a question on there, and I still remember the question. The question was... Do you hear voices? Is it really? I thought, now wait a minute. I think I understand what they're getting at here, but do I hear voices? All the time. So I thought I'd just be honest. I put yes. Realizing that it might create interesting conversation with the psychologist who surely was going to interview me after reading the results of my inventory. Do you hear voices? Yes. We hear voices all the time, don't we? Some of them might be, uh, hey, buddy, watch stay in your own lane. Or, uh, hey, miss, could you spare a little money for some lunch? Sometimes the voices are external. Sometimes they're still external voices, but they're not spoken necessarily directly to us, but we take them in anyway. The media that we consume. Sometimes those voices are heard not with our ears, but rather with our heart. And we do well to discern the nature of the voices because we can be sure that there is a God in heaven who speaks to us. And we can be just as sure that there is a spiritual enemy who speaks to us. And the two will speak different things for very different purposes. The text we're camping in is Luke chapter 4, beginning at the first verse. Let's rehearse a little bit of this. Just reading for, through, from verse 1. It says, Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit, and he returned from the Jordan and was led around by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they had ended, he became hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, let's just pause there. 
we, we know, having read this, that there are essentially three temptations recorded here, two of which in Luke's gospel involve the question, if you are the Son of God. Back up with me a little bit, okay? Just, we're going to put a pin there, and we're going to back up into chapter 3. I don't even have to turn a page in this particular Bible to see that what has just happened with Jesus is that he's just been baptized. John has baptized him in the Jordan River. There was a spirit descended. It's, in fact, it says in Luke 3, um, in verse 21, Now when all the people were baptized, Jesus also was baptized. And while he was praying, heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. And the voice came out of heaven. If, okay, if a voice comes out of heaven, that's whose voice? We're all on the same page. It's God, God's voice says, quote, You are my beloved Son, in you I am well pleased. Okay? This is an authoritative voice. The voice from heaven says, You are my Son. And immediately we find the tempter saying to Jesus, What? If you are God's son, now friends, if God says something, in the first place, I'm pretty sure he's serious about it. And in the second place, it carries more authority than any other authority on, in heaven and earth. God has said of Jesus... You are my son. If you need to be reminded of the power of God's voice, go back to Genesis chapter 1, where throughout the whole chapter it says, And God said, Let there be light. Let there be a separation between the waters and the dry land. Let there be animals, let there be this, let there be this. All of the created order comes about because God said. That's a powerful word. This word of authority, this voice of authority has said of Jesus, you are my beloved son. In you I am well pleased. Now, here's something I want you to understand very deeply. There is a proclamation that is made over every person who is baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And it is a proclamation that is the same as, not we don't take Jesus' place, but there is a voice that speaks over a person who is baptized. And the voice says the same thing. You are my beloved daughter. You are my beloved son. There is a claiming, a sealing in the act of baptism that the Holy Spirit comes upon that person and the voice of God says, you are my child. The voice of the tempter will love to challenge that. 
The way we typically read this, these verses in Luke chapter 4 is, is typical because that's the way it comes across to us in the English language. The most natural way we read this is Satan is say, putting doubt to the fact that Jesus really is God's son. That's a good way to read it, okay? Jesus will level the same challenge to every other child of God. I'm, I'm pretty convinced of this, and I'm just going to give it to you as food for thought. There are two basic ways that I believe that the tempter will try to put a lie in the, in the, in the minds of people like you and me. And they come in one or the other opposite ways. First of all, for the person who is a child of God, the tempter will try to put doubt as to that reality. He will say, are you really? He will want you to doubt it. I firmly believe that the converse is also true. For those who are not children of God, he would love to say, sure you are, and give you a false confidence. Think about it. He will lie to you because his purpose is to destroy you. He will deceive you one way or he will deceive you another. Be sure and be confident. Now there's another way to read the text of Luke 1. You have to peel back the transitions from English into the original language. But it's suggested that another challenge that Satan puts forth is in asking or saying, if you are the Son of God, what he's getting at may not be so much whether or not he is. Satan knows that he is. God's already said that he is. But then the question comes, if you are, what kind of son are you going to be? And what that question sets up are the temptations that follow. Are you going to be the kind of son that stays true to the Father's will? Or are you going to be the kind of son who uses your position to exploit your position selfishly? Think for a moment, if you will, about what the Apostle Paul wrote when he rehearsed what we call this Christ hymn in Philippians chapter 2. Okay? Have the same mind in yourself that was in Christ Jesus or our Lord who did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, grasped. There, there's a lot of variation in the English translation, but basically what Paul is saying is Jesus came down... In the, he was God, came down in human form as God, but did not regard his position as something by which he could use it to his advantage. That's the point of it. And Satan is saying, are you sure about that? You're hungry, right? You've got stones right here. Well, just make a snack. A little something to tide you over until you get out of the wilderness. Use your position to your advantage. Or gain some notoriety for yourself. Put yourself up. You're on the pinnacle up here, right? There's all kinds of people around. They would, wouldn't they be awestruck if you 
tossed yourself off the ledge and angels swoop down from heaven and, and rescue you. The scripture promises that he'll do it. Oh, that must have been tempting. Oh, what, what recognition I might get. Jesus said, no. That's not how I'm going to use my sonship. And you see, the same question applies for every other child of God. How do we use our sonship, our daughtership? Do we use it as something by which we are completely obedient to God's will? Like that's, that's all that matters? Or will we presume upon it? So there's a question. There's a question. What kind of child will you be? Identity. It's the first step, okay? God has said, you are my son. You are my child. Identity. Know who you are. Coupled with that is God's love. Your belovedness. God has set a seal of love and... Jesus is out in the wilderness to see if that will be enough. Think of the irony of this. What Jesus did in this passage goes against any kind of human wisdom or the way we would practice things. If you were about to have a, a testing, let's think of, of a physical testing, like you had a big, like you're, you're going to go run a marathon or you're going to have a, a, a big, you know, physical test in front of you, would you go hungry? Or would you store up some calories? Would you uh, get a good night's rest before? Our, our wisdom would say, I, no, I want to prepare well. I want to rest. I want to be strong. I want to be at my best so that I can perform well. And Jesus does just the opposite. He goes into the wilderness knowing that he's going to be tested and to prepare for the testing becomes weak. Allows himself to be hungry. That doesn't make sense, does it? Well, not from a human perspective. But God works in different ways. There's a little bit of a parallel that I hope will be helpful. Uh, so let me take you to another passage that's familiar to you. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, there's a, there's a little passage there, just like a part of a passage that's going to be so familiar to you. I invite you to turn there because I always want you to look at Scripture and make sure I'm telling you the truth. Okay? 2 Corinthians chapter 12, the Apostle Paul is writing to the church and he talks about this thing called a thorn in his side. Does that sound familiar to you? We don't know what Paul's thorn in the side was and it's not any good for us to pursue trying to figure that out now. But he talked about it. He, he said it, you know, and he called it specifically a messenger of Satan to buffet me. Paul thought about this thorn in the side, whatever it was, as, as something that was hindering him from becoming all that God would have him to be. Something that was keeping him from most effectively pursuing his ministry for the cause of Christ. And so... Feeling like that, Paul prayed to God to remove the thorn. It sounds logical. God, please get rid of this thing so that it's not dragging me down, so that it's not making me weak and, and tempting me, whatever you might call it. 
And what did God do? God said no, and with these familiar words, my grace is sufficient. Think about that word for a minute. Sufficient. Sufficient means enough. You don't need something else, that it is enough. My grace is sufficient for you. Now, that's familiar, right? But that wasn't all of God's response. God had something else to say and add to it. Do you remember what it was? For strength is perfected in weakness. So how do I find out how strong I am in God? When I go in my strength? No, it's in my weakness. That's where we find out. That's where we find out whether or not we pass the test. Here's the thing. Let me just put it to you as as a direct question. Is the love of God for you sufficient to make you full? Can you go on that if you had nothing else? Paul in first or in Philippians chapter four. I'll give you another setup to a familiar verse. You're familiar with verse thirteen, but I want to give you the lead up. Paul says in Philippians four twelve. In in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled, going hungry. Being filled, going hungry, having abundance, or suffering need. I know what it means to be full, and I know what it means to be empty, what it means to have all things, what it means to have nothing. Listen, he says, I've learned the secret. So whether I have all things or whether I have nothing, whether I'm full or whether I'm empty, I've learned the secret. And he follows that with that familiar verse that we toss around so much, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So... When I'm in a time of abundance, sure, okay, but we don't find times of abundance very challenging, do we? But Paul says, in the times of need, when I'm hungry, when I have nothing, when everybody's turned away, when, when I have nothing else, I have God's grace. And that's the secret, because I've figured out that when I have nothing else but I have God's grace, or substitute God's love, I have enough. tough secret to learn so my question is is God's love enough do you need something else there's a reason I have 
encouraged you all to become hungry. And it's not anything that I've created. It's not of me. Don't, it's not of me. God has compelled me that we should all be encouraged to yearn for him more. We have so much. But are we... Are we fully satisfied just in him? Now what this sets up is purpose. Okay? God has called you his child. He has poured his love toward you. The reality is that our purpose, our calling, is grounded in that belovedness, that identity. If you read just after this passage in Luke, from verse 14 going on, what you will immediately find is that Jesus has begun what we call his earthly ministry. He shows up in his hometown, Nazareth. He's the one chosen to read from the scroll. He takes the scroll, opens it up. There's the passage from Isaiah that says, beginning with, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And we read on from there. So he reads the passage. You can look on down uh, through 18 and 19. In verse 20 it says, He closed the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And then Jesus says, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now, language to me is interesting. I don't know what your Bible translation says, but my Bible translation says this scripture has been fulfilled. You might say is fulfilled. Here's what's curious. According to the scripture, at this point, Jesus has not done one miracle. Hasn't healed one blind person hasn't raised one person from the dead, hasn't cleansed one leper. So wait a minute. Is it just about to be fulfilled, or is it already fulfilled? Now, I realize that when we think about calling or vocation... We usually think about acts, right? It's something we do. And I wouldn't debate that. Surely our calling has to do with uh, actions that take place. But if that's the way we think about it, ultimately I think we're missing something more important. That any action we take has to have a foundation. The foundation of it is our identity. Jesus comes out of the wilderness and he is absolutely sure that what God has said about him is the truth. So that whether he's raising people from the dead or unpacking the scriptures or 
or praying or whatever it is he's doing, the reality of his calling is that he is a chosen, beloved son of God. And everything he does simply stems out of that. Now, a lot of times we struggle with what God has called us to do. Like, what is my calling? What is my calling? Well, I love the way that our devotional writer for this season of Lent points it out to us. Your calling, according to Dan Wilt, and I would agree, is simply to be the beloved child of God that he has claimed you to be. Do you need it to be more complicated? It doesn't matter whether you're in church or at your workplace on Monday morning or at your community event on the weekend or wherever you are. Just be the child of God that he has created you and claimed you to be. And be so filled with his love that whether it's a good time or a bad time, an easy time or a challenging time, that you don't need anything else. That you just need the fact that God has loved you and called you and claimed you. And that's enough. Just be. There's a scripture I want to... I don't want to go without reading this. I would encourage you to turn so you can see it yourself. First John, way over toward the back of your Bible, not... The Gospel of John. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. It's one of those scriptures that I think... I want you to feel what I think the author wrote, felt when he wrote this. He says, See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God. And such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know him. First part of that verse. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. You mean we weren't already? No. No. In our natural state, no, we're not. That's why John says in in the first chapter of his gospel account, in the 12th verse, that is, it is to those who received him and those who believed in his name that he gave the right to become children of God. And that word right there carries the connotation of authority. It is authority that is given to someone. If you're a sports fan, you understand this because you know that whether it's football or basketball or baseball or hockey or whatever it is, there are these guys who are on the ice or on the field or on the court who wear black and white striped shirts or whatever their shirt color may be. They're called referees or umpires or officials. They are the ones who have authority. They don't run as fast as the other guys on the field. They don't, they're not as strong But they can blow the whistle. They can throw the flag. And if they toss you out of the game, you can can throw a fit if you want. The coach can object. The crowd can boo. But you're gone. Because they have authority. And that's exactly what this word means. When John says to them, he gave the right to become children of God. It is authority that is levied to you by the Heavenly Father. 
Now, I want you to think for a moment. If you are a child of God, that is what God has done for you by his grace. Because he loves you so much. Know who you are. How much... How much are you filled by God's love right now? I'm not going to ask you if you know that God loves you. Because that probably just elicits a off-the-cuff guess. But how deeply are you overwhelmed by God's love today? Is it sufficient for you? I pray that it is. Because your calling and mine will hinge greatly on how satisfied we are with nothing else than God's love. We're glad that you chose to spend this time with us in God's Word. You can watch our worship services online at www.rm.org mcwp.net. May the Lord grant you the light of his truth as you journey through this day.